0: So this evening I want to start as we, we're going to go back to the Philippians 4, but uh, I want to start with an extract from a diary, a diary of uh, two people in the same house with two very different experiences. The first, the perspective of the dog, 8 a.m., dog food, my favorite thing, 9.30, car ride, my favorite thing. 9.40, a walk in the park. My favorite thing. 10.30, got rubbed and petted. My favorite thing. 12 o'clock, milk bones. mm, My favorite thing. 1 p.m., played in the yard. My favorite thing. 3 p.m., wagged my tail. My favorite thing. 5 p.m., dinner. My favorite thing. 7 p.m., Got to play with the ball, my favourite thing. 8 pm, wow, watch TV with the people, my favourite thing. 11 pm, got to sleep on the bed, my favourite thing. Now, the same day, but not from the dog, from the cat. Day 983 of my captivity. My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangly objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while the other inmates and I are fed hash or some sort of dry nuggets. Although I make my contempt for the rations perfectly clear, I nevertheless must eat in order to keep up my strength. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. In an attempt to disgust them, I once again vomit on the carpet. Today I decapitated a mouse and dropped its headless body at their feet. I had hoped this would strike fear into their hearts since it demonstrates my capabilities. However, they merely made some condescending comments about what a good little hunter I am. Those monsters. There was some sort of assembly of accomplices tonight. I was placed in solitary confinement for the duration of the event. However, I could hear the noises and smell the food. I overheard that my confinement was due to the power of allergies. I must learn what this means and how to use it to my advantage. Today, I was almost successful in an attempt to assassinate one of my tormentors by weaving around his feet as he was walking. I must try this again tomorrow. at the top of the stairs. I am convinced that the other prisoners here are flunkies and snitches. The dog receives special privileges. He is regularly released and seems to be more than willing to return. He is obviously mentally ill. The bird must be an informant. I observe him communicate with the guards regularly. I am certain that he reports my every move. My captors have arranged. Protective custody for him in an elevated cell, so he is safe for now. Perspective. Attitudes. Two people, the same day, the same house, can see things very differently. And you know that, while it's a wee bit silly, can... Be crucial for us tonight as we come back to the passage that we started up uh, with last week. Um, We're going back to Philippians 4 tonight and finishing off the spring clean of our office, of our minds. I hadn't planned this to be a two-part message, but I I wanted to try and do justice to this because I know it's something that is important to many of you. And also, I wanted to do it justice. Um, Last week, we spoke primarily about anxiety and how, in in these verses, God is saying, look, ultimately, this is a matter of trust. Do you trust me enough to look after you? Do you trust me as your father that things are going to be okay for you? It's about trust. Or is he worthy of our trust? Worry concern, their normal feelings. But for the Christian, they don't always have to be persistent feelings. We can fight against these concerns. We can fight against them by waging war for the primary focus of our minds. Worry and care in the Bible are pictured as having a divided mind, being torn into many different directions. That's what the Greek word means, to be torn and we can register that meaning. You know, okay, all right, what am I going to do here? I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I don't know. What am I going to do next? How am I supposed to deal with this? How am I going to cope? What, what do I do? Would someone tell me what to do, please. I d- and the divis- division of the mind, not knowing what to do next, not knowing what step to take, and our stomachs start churning because we get caught between several ideas or worse, no ideas. And we say, I'm worried, I'm anxious. My mind lacks a unity of direction, of focus, of purpose. Like the cat or the dog, it is possible to choose our focus, to choose our perspective. It is not easy, let's be clear. But over time, I do think it is something that for the most part, no one's immune, but I think for the most part, we can train ourselves to fight against this. One of the principal aspects of this was to, last week, develop a process of spending time in the place of prayer. Paul was painting a picture of coming into these verses with anxiety, with having a divided mind. But by taking everything to God in prayer, we can come out of the passage knowing the peace of God in our lives. And that was really the overview of our message last week. Let's just read the passage again to refresh your minds. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything verse 6, for this process of casting our cares. Uh, How do we take it all to God? How do we do that? Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, requests. Four different things he notices, four different aspects to it. And I want to just break those apart because tonight... I want to get to the heart of this question. Well, how do we cast our cares? How does that work? How do we take it to God in prayer? And how do we get through that process of praying so we end up with the peace of God? Because let's be honest, you could all say, I've prayed about that, Jeff, I'm still worried. I've been praying about this, and, and for some reason I'm still carrying this load. Jeff, I'm praying and I'm praying, but nothing's really changing. So how do we actually go about the process of casting our cares? We know the verse in First Peter, but ultimately the struggle is how, do we, how to go about that. We want to, we just don't know how to. And I think Paul gives us the answer here in verses seven, eight, uh, and maybe into verse nine. First of all, prayer. Um, the word prayer is a sorry, I've got. Yeah. The word prayer is a general word in the New Testament for praying, coming to God. But often the word is also translated um, as worship. Devotion. So, think of it as this way: when you're tempted to worry, worship. When you're feeling burdened, by. Because when you do this, you're focusing now on the greatness of God. Your thoughts get off the concern, the care that's all around you, and it gets onto God and His greatness, and that's the starting point for changing our perspective. See, often we rush into the throne room of God and we just start confessing all these kind of worries and demanding things to change. There is a time to cast our cares upon God, but it's not just at the start of our time of prayer. There is a process, there's a time for it, but it's not at the start. When we enter the throne room, you know, if you are to go to see Queen Elizabeth... You can't just go in and start saying, right, Liz, here's what we need to do. I need you to sort out the government. We need something happening here. We need something. No, that is not how you speak to our queen. In fact, if you were to go and see her, if you had an audience with her, you can't even get in the same room as her unless you go through a protocol training of how to stand and what to do, what gestures to make, what side of yourself she's allowed to look at and all the rest of it. And all that's just protocol to respect an earthly ruler's authority. But when we're coming to speak to the God of the universe, a heavenly Father, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, we're going to cast our curse upon him, but we don't do it right away. Because Jesus taught us to pray. When he says, when you pray, say, give us this day our daily bread. No, that's not quite right. That's not how you start. He said, when you pray, Say, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. And then, as you go through, then you say, and then give us our our daily bread. We start by focusing on, on how great he is. And here's why that's important, because worship and worry cannot coexist in the same heart. When you are they're mutually exclusive. If you start worshiping, you're going to find that your worry decreases as you get closer and closer and in awe, and awe of what, who God is. Your worries start to get a little bit smaller because we realize who we're coming to. We realize who we're speaking to. And likewise, when you start worrying, you're going to find it a lot harder to worship because that diminishes. So we start by casting our cares by rejoicing in in who we cast them to. So that's the first prayer. By prayer, by worship, by devotion. The second word you'll notice is supplication. Now this is familiar territory. It means strong, crying, begging. Oh God! it's, It's an emotional idea. In the New Testament, it's often the word translated into prayer when prayer is connected to fasting. So across the book of Luke, you'll find this word is often translated as prayer. When we talk about prayer and fasting, he's talking about supplication. Now, I think this isn't necessarily to be thought of as a section in our prayer. Oh, I've done my worship bit, now I need to do my supplicating bit. That's not... I don't think that's how it's intended. I think that supplication is supposed to be an attitude that permeates through our prayers as we worship, as we petition, as we make our requests. We do it with supplicating hearts. We do it with a heartfeltness. We do it with an emotional energy and zeal and desire. Can you imagine if we were to come to someone and say, I'm really, really worried about, um, oh, sorry, yeah. um, I'm really, really worried about, um, I know, I need a list. I need a list of something here. I'm really, no, you sort of think, are you really worried at all? But how often is our prayer life like that? I'm really worried about it. And then we get distracted, or the phone goes, or something happens. But no, no, to say, Lord, my heart is breaking for, for this situation. My heart is so burdened for, for this loss, or for this, this situation, for this crisis. For this. And, and our hearts are in it, and we're weeping, or, or heartbroken, or scared, and we feel it. That's a supplicating heart. See, I I like this. I I like the fact that there's room for this in our prayers. Because worrying or or not worrying doesn't exclude us from the place of prayer. To feel passionately about something, to feel overwhelmed about something doesn't mean that that God says, look, for you to come into my presence, you need to shut down your emotions. You're not allowed to feel anything. That's, That's not what God's saying. He's saying, no, no. But when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling the surge of emotion, bring it to me. Cast that on me. Bring that anger. Bring that bitterness. Bring that jealousy. Bring it all to me. Bring that hurt and that longing for for that person to get saved, for that person to get better, for that person to come through surgery. Whatever it is that you're praying for, bring it to him. Bring that burden. Bring that emotion to God. I love the story of one woman, a young mother. She was having her devotions in the morning. She would always have her devotions in the morning. Um, uh, but as her kids got a wee bit older, sort of taller, uh, they started to the run in around her and start interfering. You know, mommy, 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 I need this. And she would have said, look, listen, mommy, just need a wee bit of time alone with God. This is mommy's time. I'm having my devotions. And that was all well and good until one day, a phone call came into the house. And the three-year-old picked it up and said, Mommy can't talk right now. She's having her emotions. She meant devotions. But I like her choice of words. There's a time to engage your emotions, your heartfelt cries and bring them to God. That's the idea of supplication and it's part of casting our cares. We bring it all to Him. We don't just bring the information to God. We bring how we're feeling to God as well. And so I think Jesus intimated this whenever he spoke of a friend who came to see a friend at midnight, if you remember the parable, lend me three loaves of bread. Jesus said the friend will not rise then because his friend, but he gives in because of persistence. He's banging the door in the middle of the night. I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Go away, it's too, everyone's asleep. Doesn't give up. I'm not going to go until I get something from me. I'm desperate. I'm refusing to go. And there's this heartfelt desire, determination, motivation, emotion to say, I am not going anywhere until I get something. Because I need it. I need something to take away. And so the idea is supplication. Prayer, supplication, and also with thanksgiving. Don't forget, whenever you're anxious, to thank God. This is the bit where you go, uh, for what exactly? For being stressed? For being overwhelmed? For having all these emotions? I'm stressed out and filled with anxiety and worry. What exactly am I supposed to go to God and say thank you for? Well, first of all, thank God that he cares enough to give you promises like this to get you through it. So bring thanksgiving in as part of the equation. It's easy, you know, to thank God for when things are going well and everything's really obvious. God blesses you. Oh, thank you, God. You get the promotion. Thank you, Lord. Credit card gets paid off. Oh, Lord, I love you. God, I trust you. Thank you. And yeah, okay, cool. That, that's easy. That's the easy thing. But do that whenever you can put oil in the tank. You can't fix the car. It means you can't get the work. That's not so easy then to say, thank you, God. But it says here in our scripture, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests be known. Here's why you should thank God, even in these difficult, anxious times. Those trials that we go through. The circumstances, the storms, whatever metaphor you want to use for them are tools God is using to mature you and I. So think and thank. Think about what God has done for you in the past and thank him for the promise of his present provision and future deliverance. In the New Testament, there were 10 lepers that Jesus healed. Do you remember the story? whatever the circumstances were, where Jesus was specifically, whether these 10 guys were breaking all sorts of rules by going right up to Jesus in the middle of an area or whether Jesus was kind of close by and they called him over, whatever way, the 10 lepers meet Jesus. Leper, leprosy was incurable. If you had leprosy, you had no hope. People with leprosy in those days died of leprosy, a very slow, painful, excruciating death. These 10 men had leprosy. Jesus heals all 10 of them. Healed them, cured them completely. Oh. How many came back? How many? One. 10%. I wonder if that ratio has changed much among God's people. It's probably about the same, probably about 10% of people who are blessed and given things by God, really take the time to stop and say, thank you, thank you, God, thank you for this. I recognize where it's coming from. I recognize what's going on. And I wonder if that leper who came back was thankful for everything. Jesus, I want to thank you for healing me of this incurable disease. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But I also want to thank you for the lessons that I learned while I had this disease. Lord, thank you for giving me this perspective that I didn't have before. Lord, thank you for the appreciation that I have for time with my family now that I didn't have before when I was working so hard. Lord, thank you for the appreciation and perspective of seeing how other people treat those who are less fortunate than them. Lord, thank you for giving me this opportunity to see things from a different perspective. And I appreciate Those lessons, Lord, thank you for what you've shown me in the trial. Thank you for bringing me out of the trial. But thank you for the trial as well. Prayer, supplication with thanksgiving. Notice this. Then let your requests be made known to God. Let your demands is not what Paul says. Let your ultimatums be known to God. God, if you don't do this, I'm not coming back to church. God, if you don't do this, then you and me are through. I'm dumping you. Let your temper tantrum be known to God. Let your I claim it by faith be known to God. These are not things that Paul says. He says, just come into God's presence with a request. Come with a request. Lay down the request because God might say yes. He might say no. He might say maybe. He might say wait. He might say any number of things. Either way, just come with a request. Come just simply asking. Because when we do that, we say to God, whenever we do come, Lord, I am feeling passionate about this. But you are the one that I worship you are the one that I trust. And so, yes, I am hurting. Yes, I am asking. But more than that, I am trusting that you know what's best. So I'm not going to come in here and start barking orders. I'm not going to come in here and start making demands and threats that I'm going to stay away from church. or I'm not going to read my Bible if I don't get the answer that I want. Lord, I'm asking because this is, it's in my heart. But... Above that, I am simply trusting. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not may my will be done in heaven as I like to make it in earth. It says, let your request be made known to God. So articulate what is exactly it is that you want from him. And it's something that I I think we can maybe, we know, but we don't always do. Be specific. Be specific with your prayers. Lord, be with so-and-so. How would you like him to be with that person? That person who's maybe going for surgery. Could we pray a little bit more specifically? Lord, I pray that as they go in, that they'll have a peace. Lord, I pray for the family as they wait for outside the operating room and they're desperately anxious. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, may they know a peace. May they have a comfort. May the time go quickly for them as they wait. Lord, I pray that the, the recovery time would be quick. Lord, I pray that you'd use me to, to, to come alongside them and to show me what I can do to help them a far better prayer than just, oh, Lord, help so-and-so because I know they're getting surgery. Be specific. Bring your requests to God. Which brings up maybe a question, well, why? Why do I need to inform God? Why do I need to let Him know? Well, it's because we don't need to let Him know. That's not the point of this at all. You can't let Him know. You're not informing God of it. It's not like God's up there going, Oh, I never knew that. Thanks for letting me know. I should really get on that. No, he says, no. The Bible says he knows what you need before you ask it. So why should we ask? Why should we inform him? Well, it's not about informing him, but rather it's about being conformed to him when we do pray. Communication is more about information, it's about honesty, it's about vulnerability. It builds rapport, it builds trust, it builds the relationship. And for those of you who are married, for those of you who have children, for those of you who are, have close friendships built around you, you know that it's not just about an exchange of information but it's, it's about having these conversations where you know each other, and you speak your mind to each other, and it builds trust, and it builds confidence, and, and you know that you can depend on that person. Why? Because I've spent a lifetime talking to them, and listening to them, and I know them, and they know me, and so we talk because it builds the relationship. And that makes it so different. Saying, "Well, I'm not going to talk to God. Sure, He already knows the problem. I'm not going to talk to God because, sure, He can see it." You miss the point. You miss the point. It's about being changed and being conformed. You're, in a sense, voicing your weakness and voicing your dependence. Every parent loves it when their child comes and says, "Daddy, I can't do this. Will you help me?" Well, I knew that they couldn't do it. I'm their father. I know what they can and can't do. But I love it whenever they ask. Why? Because it's an invitation, not just for me to help her tie her shoelaces or zip up her coat or whatever it happens to be. It's an invitation for me to come alongside her. It's an invitation for me to get alongside her and help her. And it builds the relationship. Do you see the difference? Do you see what I'm trying to say? She, I know she needs help. But the result is, is help and relationship. And so we come to God making our request known because we're voicing who our hope is in. We're voicing who our trust is in. We're voicing who our master really is. And we give him permission to come close and have that relationship. 200 years ago, the German provinces, before they were united so, well, Germany was unified in 1892, so it was late 1880s. And there was talk of rebellion and, and there was mobs kind of looting and, and it was all getting very disjointed and getting very, very edgy for a lot of uh, people. And so there was talk of revolution in the air. A draft was made across the different um, duchies and provinces uh, that... Um, a draft was made, and young men across the countryside uh, were put on uniforms and trumped off to some unknown destiny. In one German village, there stood a grand old stone-walled church with ornate uh, carved stonework and those beautiful stained glass windows, and it had a stately pipe organ. In fact, it was famed throughout the region for its beautiful rich tones. One day, the old caretaker of the church was interrupted during his chores by a knock on the great oak doors of the uh, sanctuary. He opened the door to find a young man in German uniform on the steps. Sir, I have a favor to ask, said the young soldier. Would you please permit me to play the organ for one hour? I'm sorry, sir, the, the caretaker said. No one but our own organist is permitted to play the organ of this church. But sir, I've heard so much about the organ of this church, and I've walked so many miles just to see it, just to play it for a single hour. The old man paused and shook his head and says, No. Please, the soldier pleaded, My commander has given me 24-hour leave. In a few more days, we're going to another province where the fighting is expected to be heavy. This might be my last chance to ever play this organ. The caretaker reluctantly nodded. He swung the door open, beckoned the man in inside, took the key from his pocket and handed it to the soldier. The organ is locked. Here's the key. The soldier took the key, unlocked the ornate cabinet of the organ, and he began to play. A billow of majestic chords rolled from the great golden pipes of the organ. The caretaker stood transformed transfixed as the glorious music washed over him, bringing tears to his eyes. He moved to one of the pews and sat down, just transfixed. Within minutes, people from the village gathered at the church doorway and peered in. Taking off their hats, the villagers stepped into the sanctuary and sat down to listen. Streams of beautiful music filled the sanctuary for one hour. Then the gifted fingers of the organist struck a final chord and lifted from the keyboard. The young man closed and locked the cabinet. And as he stood and turned, he was surprised to see the church was full of parishioners who had laid aside their chores and work and worries to listen to his music. Humbly receiving his compliments, the young soldier walked down the center aisle and returned the key to the caretaker. Thank you, the young man said. The old man rose to his feet and took the key. No, no, thank you. Grasping the soldier's gifted hands. Young man, that was the most beautiful music these old ears have ever heard. What's your name? My name's Felix, said the soldier. Felix Mendelssohn." The old caretaker's eyes widened as he realized whose hand he was shaking. The young man who, before the age of 20 years old, had become the most celebrated composer in all of Europe. The old man gazed at the young soldier as he left this church and disappeared into the village street to think, the old man said out loud, to think the master was here. And I almost didn't give him the key. So it is with us, folks. The master's here. God is here. He's with us. He, he, his grace envelops us. And if you give him the key, if you give him his place, he can make unimaginably beautiful music in our life, even if the backdrop is difficult and hard. When we make our requests to God, what we're doing is we're giving him our heart, but we're also saying, but Lord, I give you the key. I give you the key. Here's my heart. I, I, I want this, but I trust you. Take the key. Do something beautiful. That's how we can cast your cares, folks. But there is more. Verse seven, we are shown that uh, what we 've looked at allows for the peace of God, to come and reside in our hearts. To think it 'll be OK. It might not be easy, but it'll be okay. Never cheapen the peace. It allows you to get a full night's rest. That is a very powerful thing, folks. And for those of you who have had sleepless nights, you'll know exactly what I mean. But in verse 8, then, we read the following. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. The focus is still in our minds. And Paul's like the original primary school teacher. who says, okay, class, put your thinking caps on. I don't know if your teacher's ever told you to put your thinking caps on. But um, we all had that line given to us. Why the teacher was saying, look, okay, guys, I need you to concentrate. I need you to think about this. I need you to concentrate. I need you to grasp this next bit because it's going to be crucial for the rest of the lesson. Get your thinking caps on. Rene Descartes. Once wrote, cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. What he was saying was, when we doubt if we are real or if our existence is real, is there anything that's real? He says, by the very fact that we can think about those types of questions, proves that we are real. I think, well, therefore I am. I don't think Paul would have disagreed with that, but Paul would have went a wee bit further. Paul, the apostle, would have says, okay. But what I would say is, I think, therefore I do. I think, therefore I do. That is, my thought life is attached to the rest of my life. Whatever it is you do, think on, is what you eventually will do. So that... Good thought will bear good fruit. That bad thought will bear bad fruit. If we focus in on negative and bitterness and anger and jealousy, that's going to lead us to act in bitterness and jealousy and anger. But if we think about grace and if we think about hope and we think, then we're going to act on that. Henry Ford once said, Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably why so few engage in it. The Bible encourages us to be thinkers. Because what we think drives what we do. The best example is the book of Romans. Paul spends the first 11 chapters of that book telling us how we should think. And he logically lays out about what we think about God, what we think about sin, what we think about ourselves. And then in chapter 12, he writes, verse 1, he says, "...I beseech you, therefore, with all that I've told you about thinking..." Therefore, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. After all this, therefore do. And so in the fight for our fight to live lives that are free from anxiety and worry, we need to fight for our minds. And in verse 8, I want to just show you three things very quickly, just three wee bullet points. Think carefully, think righteously think actively. So number one, think carefully. And the list of these things in verse 8 afterwards we're told, think about these things. Other versions might say meditate on or ponder these things, but the idea is fill your mind with good things. This word think is, is where we get the word logic. Think logically. Do you know that according to Scripture, thinking is paramount? Solomon the writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 23, verse 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. You are the sum of your thoughts. People's lives are the product of people's thoughts. Remember what Jesus said, Mark 7, For what comes out of a man that defiles him. Listen to a little bit more of that. I'll read a wee bit more. Just In the New Living Translation, Jesus speaking says, It is the thought life that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, eagerness for lustful pleasure, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you and make you unacceptable to God. That's the negative, but the reverse is also true. The positive is also true. The point is people's doings are the result of people's thinkings. We do what we think. Now, in the Bible, God commands us to think. In Isaiah 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. I've always thought that Christians should be great thinkers. And it is always um, worth admiring a Christian who thinks deeply about the things of God, who thinks deeply about the world around them. Unfortunately for some of us, our brain cells are seriously under-exercised. And partially that's because some people's view of spirituality is not intellectual. Sometimes it's not. uh, You go to some churches, you go to some places, and and it's all about how we feel. It's all about the mystical and the magical, and they talk about having this deeper life. And somehow if we claim to know absolutes, that somehow we're lesser because we're being legalistic or we're being pernickety. Because it's all meant to be unsearchable. It's all supposed to be unknowable. It's all supposed to be unintelligible. And we're simply supposed to be overwhelmed by God. It's a load of nonsense. That's not the God of the Bible. God has given us His Word so we might know Him. He wants us to be known by Him and to know Him. I'm all about the deeper life, but some people who are after the deeper life have gone off the deeper end. Jesus said to the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus also said, learn of me. Peter wrote and said, grew in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hosea, the prophet, cried out, my people perish for their lack of knowledge. Not a lack of zeal, but a lack of knowledge. And all of that is to say it's okay to think as a Christian. Don't put a sign out in the foyer that says, leave your brains here. No, we want, as a church, your mind to be fully engaged. We want this to be a place where you wrestle with and turn things around and you question and you ponder and you resolve and you challenge. And all of that, it's okay to do that, to think about these things. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. I wonder, do you think carefully about God? What do you feed your mind on? Can I recommend a book to you? Um, Josh McDowell wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There was a reprint just released, I don't know, maybe a couple of months ago. Um, and it's all about evidences that substantiate the Christian faith. One of the things that I found first in it when I opened it up, it said this, a heart cannot rejoice in what the mind cannot accept. That's gold. That is absolute gold. A heart cannot rejoice in what the mind cannot accept. Number two, think righteously. Paul hasn't told us just to think, but to think righteously. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Or or listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So think about, think righteously. The list in, in, in verse 8 here, whatever things are pure, whatever noble, all, all these things are the same kind of thing. They all kind of relate to the same sort of thing about righteous thinking. True things are noble. Noble things are just. Just things are pure. Pure things are lovely. It's all this sort of one-off describing the same thing, thinking righteously. But here's the point. Don't you think that we need to be vigilant about the kind of things that we allow to influence our thoughts in terms of what we see, in terms of what we hear, the programs that we watch, the social media feeds that we subscribe to. Paul isn't being just generic here when he says whatever, like whatever you think is beautiful, whatever you think is lovely, whatever you think, then just think about whatever you can. no. These are the qualities, in verse 9, you'll notice that he goes on to say, these are the qualities that he taught and lived by himself. These things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do you. These do you. So the God of peace will be with you. So of all these things he mentions in in the 8th verse as parameters of thinking are all found in Scripture. And it could be that Paul's saying, Let the Bible govern righteous thinking. And the reason I say it is because it seems to mirror Psalm 19. Um, let's listen to this and just how close it sounds to, to Philippians 4, verse 7 of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are just or right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Sounds very familiar to the description in Philippians 4, doesn't it? He's saying, think righteously. Can I just highlight one of the words before we move on and finish up? Whatever things are true, people who fight against anxiety and worry are always getting lost in what is true and what is fake. They will focus on the ifs. They will imagine terrible scenarios that just aren't true. Paul says, don't be anxious. Pray to focus on what is true and who is true. It's even more important these days because there's a generation coming through now where honestly, truth isn't all that important. If it feels good, then that's your truth. That's your truth, that's not my truth, but I've got my truth over here because this makes me happy. This makes me laugh. This makes me, and, and that's what we, we go for because truth isn't that important. Feelings trump truth. To a whole new generation, it's not about whether it's true or not. If it makes you feel good, that's the important thing. And if it doesn't make you feel good, then it's not your truth. I don't know if you've heard that, but, you know, if someone says, well, what do you do? Well, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. A bit of pop psychology might sound harmless, but actually it's probably the worst bits of advice ever. Follow your heart. Here's why. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So if you're driven by emotional feelings, if you're driven by what your heart is telling you, you're in trouble because the heart can't be trusted. It might feel good temporarily, but eventually you go off the deep end. So meditate on righteous truth. Okay, number number three, think actively. Let's read verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. This do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, that you're thinking about these things, do them. He's not saying he's perfect, but Paul is saying, look, follow my example. Follow my example. Paul does this a couple of times in this book and in other books. Follow me as I follow God. Imitate me as I imitate him. Here's the point. Find a good godly example in your life because that will reinforce good godly thinking it will reinforce good godly behaviors, and you'll see it lived out. There's no poem that I memorized, and I've quoted a thousand times when I was younger. it should be a thousand and one. You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say, and they see what you do. So what is the gospel according to you? Do we show by our lives that God is worth trusting? Do we show that He is not only Savior, but that He is Lord, that He is in control? What is the gospel according to you? And what's the result? It's the same that comes from praying and casting our cares on God. We get the peace of of God. It's the crowning achievement of good, godly, right-thinking, and living God of peace will be with us. Now, I can't help but do this, but verse 7 ends by talking about the peace of God, which is great but actually that's not exactly what we're told we will have now because that is a feeling. We get the peace of God. That's great, amazing to have the peace of God. We talked last week about having peace with God and not every Christian will have the peace of God. We get the peace with God because we're saved. We're no longer fighting against him. We're at peace with him, but we don't always have the peace of God, that feeling of peace in our hearts. But here, it's not the promise of a feeling. It's the promise of a person. The God of peace will be with you. You'll have his presence with you. You'll have him alongside you. And we love the peace of God. That's amazing. But we love when the God of peace is so intimate and close with us that we experience that intimate fellowship. Here's the point just as we finish. If you think godly thoughts and you live godly lives You'll feel God's peace because the God of peace is the one that you're walking with. And he'll be with you. Folks, I, I wonder. Look, I, 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 I hold my hands up. I know that you can't actively, completely do a full psychological breakdown of being anxious and worry and anxiety in a half hour or so in church on a Sunday night. But this I do know, and this I, I have proven what we think about will so often determine how we focus our lives and what we do as we focus our lives, and if we fill if we allow worry and anxiety and fear and doubt and dread to overwhelm us, we will always be stuck doing nothing, never moving forward, wrapped up in. The fear of failure, which tells a world out there that they don't really trust God. God couldn't be that big. God couldn't be that powerful. God couldn't be that important to them because they can't even do anything. They're too scared. But I do believe that if we believe God is who our Bibles say he is, he is worth trusting. I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm not talking about being daft or just doing spur-of-the-moment things. I'm saying that whenever trials come, whenever storms come, this is whenever we go back to what we know to be true. God is bigger than the storms. God will never leave us or forsake us. And we look to him. Yes, we we can go with our supplications. We can go with our brokenness. We can go with our fears. We can go to Him. But we're going to Him because we know He's big enough. We know that we can trust Him in the storms. And so we come back to the same question. Do we believe God is worthy of our trust? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will draw near this evening, that we will see you as you really are, Lord, that we'll get a, a better picture of, of who you are. Lord, I think of, of sometimes whenever we, we, we go driving down towards Newcastle and the fog comes in over and we can't see the mourn mountains, we, we, it just looks like there's just gray sky. And so often, Lord, when the fog of worry and anxiety comes, it feels like the presence of God, so big and so powerful and so majestic, just vanishes from our point of view. We can't see you, Lord. Lord, we pray. Now, as we come to you this evening, we would see that fog lift and the grandeur and the majesty and the might and the presence of God would would overwhelm us. And so Lord, we would just pray and ask that you would you would be with us. Lord, as we come to pray and as we bow our heads and as we seek to cast our cares, Lord, our hearts would be filled with worship. Lord, that we would be honest about how we're feeling. Lord, that that would build that relationship that we have with you. Lord, that would only anchor us more firmly and root us more deeply in you. Lord, that we would know not only the peace of God, but we would know that the God of peace is with us. Lord, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.